Matthew 27, verses 57 through 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Heavenly Father, having read your word, O Father, we recognize and freely confess to you, O Father, that we need your grace to understand it. So, O Lord, we ask that you would be pleased, O Father, to meet each one of us where we are, that, O Lord, you would apply your word to our hearts, that, O Father, you would send your Holy Spirit to accompany these words, that, O Father, we would truly hear your voice this morning, that, O Father, we might be encouraged, that, O Father, that we might be... um, that we might see you, see you clearer than we have in the past, O oh Father. We might see your splendor and your majesty and your, your glory, O oh Father, in ways that perhaps we've never seen it before. So, Lord, we ask that you would do this work, and we look to you, Father, for only you can do this work. And we ask that you would do this work even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we took a much larger uh, text, beginning with verses 27 and going all the way to verses 56. And uh, some of you will recall last week, the subject really was Christ's humiliation. And as I look around, there's many of you who didn't hear that message. So let me just give a recap because it really is, in many ways, a building block to this morning's message Uh, In verse 27, Jesus has now been released to the custody of the uh, Roman soldiers. Pilate, uh, seemingly reluctantly, has given Jesus over to be crucified. Uh, We saw in a a previous message where Pilate had made several attempts to try to release Jesus. Uh, But when all of them failed, he finally gives word. He releases Jesus to the custody of the Roman soldiers. And in verses 27 through 31, they take Jesus into... The, uh, into Pilate's headquarters, and there they uh, really make sport of him. He uh, really is brutally abused uh, in these quarters. And then in verse 32, Jesus is led out of the city, and uh, he is led to a place called Golgotha, verse 33, which means a place of, uh, of a skull. And we are told that he is crucified there. And then the folks who are passing by began to mock Jesus. The uh, chief priests, the elders and scribes join in in mocking Jesus. The crowds uh, begin uh, to mock Jesus. And you will recall that uh, crucifixion was a form of public execution. And uh, it was meant for that purpose uh, to uh, restrain evil, if you will, Uh, What the Romans typically would do is they would put a a sign over top of or a sign around the neck of the party that was being crucified. And that sign would contain the name and the charge. And of course, Jesus is crucified with a sign uh, that says this is Jesus, uh, King of the Jews. 
And what this is meant to do is to show everybody who might be thinking of committing the particular crime uh, of which that crucified party was being executed, that they would stop and they would look and they'd say, uh, see, this is what we do to these characters uh, when they commit these kinds of crimes. Uh, so it was really, a, indeed, a very deeply humiliating way uh, to, uh, uh, to be executed. And it was purposefully so. Uh, no mercy is, uh, is shown in this. And that brings us down to verse 45. Mark, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus is crucified at around 9 in the morning. And we're told in verse 45, from the sixth hour, if you're reading the ESV translation, it says from the sixth hour, uh, that would be high noon. Around high noon, uh, the sun uh, refuses to shine. It gives up its light, if you will, that there's darkness over all the land until about the ninth hour. That's about three o'clock in the afternoon. And last week we paused at that and we spent a few minutes looking at the significance of that. And from a number of Old Testament passages, we saw that, uh, that indeed this darkness actually is symbolic of judgment. And we saw a number of Old Testament passages that pointed to this. There was full expectation of this. And uh, we spent some time looking at that. Uh, what is happening there? What's happening there is God the Father is actually transferring the sin debt from the people whom Jesus came to save to Jesus. It's really an astonishing thing if you think about it. Here is God's precious one and only Son hanging in agony on this cross, physical agony. Yet He never offers a complaint, does He? Not until the ninth hour. He hangs there for three hours. The sun grows dark, indicating to us that now those charges, the crimes that His people have committed are now being put a Upon Christ, they're being accredited to Christ's accounts. And now Jesus, in, in terms of his soul, is actually bearing the full wrath of Almighty God against those sins. He's, he's, he's underneath the very judgment of those sins. And Jesus finally does offer a complaint, doesn't he? What does he say? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And we spent some time last week looking at those words. Those are incredible words. And the first thing that we noticed, that we took note of last week, is the way Jesus addresses the Lord. He always addresses Him as Father. But not here. What does He say? My God. My God. And He goes on to say, Why have you forsaken me? What's taking place? As this transaction takes place, as the Father takes the sins of those whom Christ came to save, as those sins are placed on Jesus on that cross, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that Jesus was made to be sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He was made to be sin. And as that transaction takes place, the Father can now no longer look upon Jesus. And He actually has to turn His head away from the glory of Christ. And we need to be careful with that. We need to understand that God is not withdrawing His love from Christ. 
Hardly. But sin is what separates us from God, isn't it? And this is the most fearful thing for Christ. It's, it's, it's the pinnacle, the nadir of his actual passion, the nadir of his suffering is this anguish of soul here. We, a lot of times when we're preaching this and you hear this being preached, a lot of uh, energy is spent on the physical aspects of the cross. And I don't mean to diminish that in any way. But that's, that's, I don't know that that's even the half of it. I would argue that's only the third of it. For the first time, Jesus, as per his human nature, is actually separate from the Father in this mysterious sense. I can imagine that heaven went completely silent when this took place. As Jesus bore this awful wrath. And then we're told by the other gospel writers that at one point, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? Jesus has now completed the work of atonement for his people. His suffering is completed. And very shortly after that, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I shared with you last week, it's my personal, my personal view that Jesus actually chooses the time that he goes through the doorway of death. For after, after it is finished, what point is there for Jesus to hang on the cross any further? It's already done. That's, that's the work that he came to do. And he looks to the Father, and now he's back to addressing God as Father now. That separation has been, is, is, is now been, it's been closed. They're back in union again. And Jesus commits his spirit into the hands of the Father, and he gives up his spirit and he dies. And that brings us to verse 57 and uh, following. Now, I think you, you perhaps can relate with this. Uh, I think it's easy for us, when we think about Christ's work, it's easy for us to go from the crucifixion to the resurrection. In fact, oftentimes when we talk about it, perhaps uh, we go from the crucifixion straight to the resurrection, or we might say from the death of Christ to the resurrection of Christ from his dying to his being raised. And we have a tendency, I think, to skip the burial. In your own private conversations with people at the water cooler at work, how often have you talked about the burial of Christ? I think it's easy for us to skip that. And um, really what made my decision to focus on that this morning really is I think we do often skip that. Uh, I was going to take verses 57 all the way to 28.15 this morning, as I announced last week, but I also gave myself a little leeway. I wanted to prayerfully reflect on that, but I think we need to spend a morning on the burial of Christ. All four gospel writers include the burial of Christ. And in your bulletin, you have uh, the Apostle Paul's like, concise summary of the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And he includes the burial there, doesn't he? He includes the burial of Christ. So the question before us right now is, what is the significance of the burial of Christ? In other words, what is the actual burial of Christ adding to the overall story of the gospel? What does the burial of Christ say to us 
that the death of the Christ and the resurrection of the Christ fails to say. Or we might ask this question, what does the burial of Christ add to the story? That's not a real easy question, is it? If we were all to get an exam this morning, myself included, and we have a blank sheet of paper and we were asked those questions, what in the world would we write down? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. Uh, we're introduced to a, a man in verse 57 that we haven't seen before and that we won't see afterwards. We're told his name is Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, we're told that he's a rich man. And if we look at all four of the gospel accounts of this, we're told in, in Mark and Luke, for instance, that he was a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. Uh, he was a rich man, and he was a man that wasn't so much focused on his riches, which is really rare. He was a man who was focused on the kingdom of God. He was a man who was focused on the things above. We're also told that he was a good and righteous man, Luke 23, 50. And, and in Luke 23, 50, we're also told that he was a member of the council. That is a member of the Sanhedrin. And those of you who have been following this study all through this might find that quite amazing. He was a member of the what? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. You mean he was a member of the characters that, that were doing everything they could to crucify Jesus? Yeah. He was a member of that, of that body. In fact, Mark tells us he was a respected member of that body. But yet Luke is very careful to tell us that he had never consented to their decision and actions towards Jesus. So he's a little bit of an oddball in that group, isn't he? And we're told here in verse 57 that he was a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. Okay, that's about all we know about Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea. That's about it. What does he do? What does Joseph do? He goes to Pilate... He asks for the body of Jesus. Okay. Mark 15.43 says that he took courage and went to Pilate. You better believe he took courage and went to Pilate. How popular do you think that would be? A member of the Sanhedrin is going to go to Pilate and ask for what? The body of Christ? When criminals were crucified on the cross, the Romans usually just left their bodies there to rot. If they were taken down, they were just thrown in a ditch. That was part of the humiliation of crucifixion. Very rarely were they given a proper burial. But of course, this is, uh, this is the eve before the Sabbath. And according to Jewish law, those bodies need to be taken down. And we know the Jews go to Pilate and they ask Pilate, will you break the legs of those who've been crucified so that we can take their bodies down and we can bury them because the Sabbath is coming? And Pilate gives... Uh, word, and this is an act of mercy. This is the kind of mercy that, that you would receive in this form of execution. They would break the legs of the, of the, of the crucified party so that they could, it actually would stop them from being able to breathe. Uh, in this position, the only way you could breathe would be to push yourself up and down. And with your legs being broke, you would no longer be able to do that. You would suffocate and die. And we're told that the soldiers went to the first robber, um, broke his legs, they went to the other robber, uh, broke their legs, and then when they went to Jesus, they discovered that Jesus was already dead. And you know the story about the soldier uh, piercing Jesus' side and the blood and the water 
comes out of his side. And all that's a sermon for another day. Uh, but Jesus is indeed, Jesus is already dead. So none of his bones are broken in accordance to uh, Old Testament scripture. There are prophecies that indicate such. None of his bones are to be broken. Now Pilate, Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent all along. So when Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for the body, Pilate's pleased to give it to him. Sure. He gives the body and uh, Pilate, or uh, Joseph, if you will, we're told in verse 59, takes the body, wraps it in a clean linen shroud and lays it in a, in a rich man's tomb. Uh, fulfilling prophecy in Isaiah 53. Some of you might even be familiar with this prophecy. You don't need to turn there, but just, just listen to verse 9. This is spoken about 700 years earlier. Isaiah writes, They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Speaking of the burial of Jesus, speaking of the way that Jesus would be buried. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. John, in his gospel, tell us, tells us that Nicodemus helped him. Now, of course, I, I can't imagine this week. I've spent all week long thinking of the task of taking Jesus' body down from the cross. I just can't imagine that assignment. Uh, but this is what these men do, and they give Jesus an honorable burial. We're told that, that they brought 75 pounds of, si of spices and perfumes. And, and in the tradition of the day, uh, Jesus gets this upscale burial. It's a very quick one because the Sabbath is on the way. But nevertheless, it is an upscale burial. Now, we need to ask the question, what is the meaning of this? What is the significance of what has taken place? Well, at the onset, I think most obvious is that the burial of Jesus certifies that he did indeed die. He, he did indeed die. Okay, is that the whole point of this? Uh, I think not. Uh, I think not. Um, I think the main point of this is that Jesus is now in transition from his humiliation, which we looked at last week, to his exaltation, which we're going to continue to see from this point on. From humiliation to exaltation. And if we were to ask ourselves again, if we were to say, okay, uh, where is the humiliation of Jesus? Where is it most... Where is it most acutely seen? I think we would all go to verse 45 and think, oh, well, the sun is dark and where Jesus is really suffering under the penalty of the, of, uh, of the sins of those who He came to save. That's where His, that's where his humiliation reaches. It's, it's, it probably reaches its nadir at that point, but His entire earthly ministry was uh, humiliation in a sense. He was born to a poor, obscure virgin in an obscure, no-name town. And lived in poverty for his entire life. So all of his life, uh, exiting uh, heavenly bliss and coming, all of his life was a life of humiliation. But it reaches its high point when he is uh, enduring the wrath of the sins of his people. But then if we were to ask, well, when does Christ's exaltation begin? I think most of us would be inclined to say, well, at the resurrection. At the resurrection. But I don't think so. His exaltation is beginning in his burial. 
at his burial. Jesus receives a burial that very few people would have received in that day. And he's laid in a rich man's tomb in which nobody had ever been laid. Okay? What's the significance of that? What does that mean? Well, it's pointing to at least two things. One, Jesus is no longer under the dominion of death. And two, Jesus is now no longer under the dominion of sin. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6, the passage that we read at the opening of our service. We kind of have to put our thinking caps on a little bit here for this. Romans chapter 6, 942, the actual verses that I want to look at first are on page 943 if you're using the church's Bible. If you look at verse 9, which we did not read verse 9 this morning, but look at verse 9, that sets us up. The Apostle Paul writes, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. See that phrase, death no longer has dominion over him. What does that mean? That means that death once had dominion over him. But now it no longer has dominion over him. And then uh, we read in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin. And that's a difficult, that's a difficult thing to understand, isn't it? That he died to sin. How could Jesus die to sin? Well, we might think, well, Jesus died to do away with sin. But how does he die to sin? It's, it's, it's in parallel with what Paul says in verse 11. He says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. It's easy to see how we can die to sin. And if you back up to verse 2, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That phrase, to sin, died to sin. We have all these parallel accounts. The question before us is, how could Jesus have died to sin? Well, we must qualify this right away and understand that Jesus is not under sin in the same way that we are. As unbelievers, as fallen human beings, we're under sin and actually we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to sin in such a way that there's no escape for us. Unless Jesus comes to... Uh, our side and comes to our assistance unless we receive grace uh, from the Father we're powerless we're enslaved to sin sin has dominion over us but we cannot say that of Christ Christ is without sin everybody with me? he's without sin but yet he's still under the power of it he just never succumbs to it look down to verse 23 You see, for the wages of sin is death. Death is produced by what? According to that verse. It's produced by sin. And Jesus is certainly under the power of death, isn't He? And what has produced this death? It's sin. What does all this mean? That means that Jesus willingly submitted Himself to both the power of death And the power of sin, which is really driving the power of death. As he lived that perfect life, 
which was so vital for him to live that perfect life, earned that perfect righteousness. And it's that perfect righteousness which is the great gift of salvation. That perfect righteousness is given to us who have no righteousness of our own. So what's going on in the burial of Jesus? When Jesus gives up His Spirit on the cross and commits Himself into the hands of the Father, He's now no longer under the power of death. In fact, when His Spirit went into heaven, which I would submit to you was hushed silent while He was on the cross, when His soul went into heaven, into the arms of the Father, I can't even begin to imagine the celebration that took place there. Not only is the soul of Jesus now present with the holy angels and with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but victory has been won and the salvation for the church has been accomplished. Could you imagine the celebration that took place at that very moment? Jesus' assignment is over. It's finished. He's now no longer under the power of death. He's now no longer under the power of sin. What's all that got to do with us? Oh, it has everything to do with us. Look at verses 3 and 4, which we did read this morning. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Now, what's Paul mean by baptism? I think he's pointing to water baptism. Is Paul saying that by water baptism that we're automatically brought into faith with Jesus? That as soon as we're doused with the water or we're, we're pushed under the surface of the water, that immediately we're brought into faith with Jesus? No, the Apostle Paul can't be saying that because that would contradict what he says everywhere else. So then what is he saying? He's referring to that whole process of conversion. He's referring to that whole process of having faith. Your eyes being opened... And faith, which is the hands that reach out and take Jesus as Savior, that whole thing that unites us and brings us into union with Christ is what Paul is referring to here. And what Paul is saying is, listen, as we are brought into union with Christ by faith, we've died with Him. And in verse 4, he says we were Buried with Him. By baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, let me, let me put all this together. The commentary here by James Boyce that I think is so helpful that I'd just rather read his, his short paragraph here to you rather than try to put it in my own words. Jim Boyce says this. He says, I suggest that the reason burial is an important step, even beyond death, is that burial puts the deceased person out of this world permanently. It puts the person out of this world permanently. A corpse is dead to life, but in a sense is still in life as long as it is around. 
When it is buried, when it is placed in the ground and covered with earth, it is removed from the sphere of the sphere of this life permanently. It's gone. That is why Paul, who wanted to emphasize the finality of being removed from the rule of sin and death, emphasizes it. He is repeating, but also intensifying what he said about our death to sin earlier. You have not only died to it, he says, you've been buried to it. To go back to sin once you have been joined to Christ is like digging up a dead body. Now, what does all that mean? It's hard, to, it's hard to, to listen to a paragraph like that and put it together. What does that mean? The Apostle Paul is saying this. Just as Christ, when He died on the cross and was buried on the cross, He is now free from the power of sin and death. He's free. He's in heaven. He's rejoicing. As per His soul. And on the third day, His body is raised. His soul is reunited to His body. But basically, at this point, even at His burial, He's rejoicing. He's rejoicing in heaven. He's free. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is by our union with Christ, by our union with Christ, if you have saving faith in Christ this morning, guess what? You're dead to this world too. You're dead to this world too. You're no longer under the power of sin and death. Ha <laughs> ha. In fact, you don't even belong here anymore. And to, to try to go back, to try to enter back into that dead body, and then try to dig your way back out of that grave, how horrifying a thought that must be. So by our faith and our union in Christ, what's actually happening to us? We're being, we're being taken clear out of the world in a sense. That's why Jesus in His high priestly prayer says, they're not of the world no more, Father. They're still in the world, but they're not of the world. Why? Because we're now citizens of heaven. We have to dwell here for a period of time, but we're no longer citizens here. What does that mean for us? That means we ought to be radically different. That means to continue on like we once did, those of us who have been converted to adulthood, to continue on would be completely out of character. To continue that way would be to, would, would be, to be completely out of character. So I guess the burial means something after all, doesn't it? Christ's burial is our burial. And as we move to the resurrection, we're going to find that Christ's new life is ours too, isn't it? <coughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for uh, these uh, holy and precious words, Father. And Father, as often is the case, Lord, I don't really know what to say in, in response to such such wonderful truths, O oh Father. What do we say to you? What do we say in response to this, O oh Father? I, we say this, O oh Father. Fill every heart here this morning, O oh Lord, with these truths. O oh Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not been brought into union with Christ, O oh Father, we pray that, Lord, you would change that even right now. O oh Father, that all these truths would apply to each of us, O oh Father, that, Lord... You would liberally give us the gift of faith and repentance that we would reach out and take these, these precious truths to be ours. That, oh, Father, we would die to this world and that we would live uh, to Christ Jesus. 
that that breach uh, would take place permanently, that we would be brought into citizenship with heaven. And, oh, Father, that you would work in our lives and make us fit for our ultimate desti destination, O oh Lord, which is with you in glory for eternity. So, problem, Father, we look to you. Uh, we look to you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen.